1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is our study again today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be looking, looking at verses 5 and 6. As you find that, I want to discuss or really examine a familiar idiom with you for a moment. It's an idiom that countless people throughout human history have been operating their lives according to. Here it is. You've heard it. The end justifies the means. This idiom is used to say that a desired result is so important, so good, that any way of achieving it, even a morally bad one, is acceptable, just as long as the end goal is achieved. For example, if your goal is to get a job to earn more money for your family, that's a good thing. Have more money to give to ministry and to the church, that's a good thing. This idiom would encourage lying on a resume in order to get hired because the end justifies that means. Or once hired, this idiom would justify stealing from the company to accomplish that good goal. Well, the reality of it is if each of us were to honestly examine our lives, we might very well find that in certain circumstances, we do live by that. We do justify the means because of the end that we're trying to pursue. And then, once we decide to do something wrong, to achieve something good, we are very skilled at justifying our choices, justifying our behavior. We're experts, really. Experts at rationalizing any action if the desire for the end goal is strong enough. Obviously, the problem with that idiom, that philosophy, the end justifies the means, the problem is that it makes right and wrong subjective. So the question is, what does God think about that philosophy? Well, to answer, we should start with what we know about God. And we find that in Scripture. And part of what we know from Scripture is that God is perfectly holy. He hates all sin. He is just, perfectly just, and He is faithfully and perfectly good. And those who claim to follow Him are called to be like Him, to reflect His character. The Apostle Peter reminds us of that in 1 Peter 1, verse 15. He says, like the Holy One who called you, in other words, saved you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And to be holy, we must be obedient to God's timeless moral principles that are found throughout Scripture, principles that are clear as to what is moral and immoral, right and wrong. So why did this philosophy even spring into existence, this idea that the end justifies the means? I think one reason is fear. In other words, we're afraid if we don't do certain things to accomplish a certain goal, we're not going to get what we want in life, and we are not going to be happy. That is all sinful dysfunction, really, and the answer to that is to trust God. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, all those means, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. If we trust Him, 
while we're obeying Him, we will go through life then confident of His care. We'll go through life confident, knowing that He's going to accomplish His will in our lives, regardless of what we might face from time to time. Listen to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Do not be worried about your life. Verse 27. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Nobody. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing? Verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here it is. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's the priority. There's the order. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So to summarize, we don't need to live our lives in fear and anxiety, which can result in living by that erroneous philosophy, that idiom, the end justifies the means. We can trust God as we live for him. And as we live for Him, we need to remember that the Lord cares about both sides of what we're talking about. He cares about what we do, and He cares about how we go about accomplishing it, which means that in God's eyes, the end never justifies sinful means. To say it differently, God doesn't just want us focusing on results and goals, even when they're good. God cares how we accomplish those results. Now, this all touches on a related topic, and I really think it's a subject that underlies everything I'm saying here in this stream of consciousness that I was writing this week. It's the issue of motives. Motives. When we say that God cares just as much about the means as He does the end, it includes the fact that He cares about our motives because motives, heart motives, are an element of the means. Someone may do something good, there's the end, but their motive for doing it is wrong and sinful. So in that case, is the end all God cares about? The answer is no. He cares about the why. He cares about the motive. Proverbs 16, verse 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, listen, but the Lord, Yahweh, weighs the motives. So since we can do the right thing, but with the wrong intention, the wrong motive driving it all, let's talk about motives for a moment. The underlying reasons for any of our words, any of our actions, the reality is we can easily deceive ourselves. We can fool ourselves about our own motives. We can pretend that we're choosing certain actions. We're doing it for the Lord. Or we're doing it for the benefit of others, my family, my spouse, the church, when in reality, all the time, we have selfish reasons for what we are saying or doing. So the fact is, people can operate from a variety of motivations and a variety of intentions which can be sinful. Our words and actions can be driven by pride. They can be driven by anger. They can be driven by revenge or a sense of entitlement or the desire for approval any other expression of selfishness as well. And God is not fooled by any of it. He's never fooled by our selfishness. He always knows what our motives are. Scripture tells us that motives are important 
even in serving him, take giving, for example, when we give our offerings to the Lord, when we give our money, he knows the conditions of our hearts, our reasons. That's why Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart. He's talking about giving to the Lord's work there, to ministry. Do what you've purposed in your heart to do, but not grudgingly. That's a heart motivation. Not under compulsion. That's a heart motivation because God loves a cheerful giver. God's not so much looking at the amount that you're writing on the check or whatever. It's, I mean, he knows that. He sees that, but he's looking at the heart intention. Are you doing it grudgingly, under compulsion? Is it cheerful, joyful? Take the topic of prayer. Selfish motives can hinder our prayers. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you don't receive because you ask, you pray about it, you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your own pleasures, even if the thing you're asking for is good. And we can even preach from sinful motivations. Paul knew that. In Philippians 1, verse 17, some came of his followers came to talk to him about some people out there, and Paul knew about it, that were preaching. Here's what it says, Philippians 1, 17. They're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. So God is not impressed with any of our deeds, even religious ones, when our intentions, our motives are wrong. Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more it is when he brings it with evil intent. Back to Matthew 6 again. Jesus spoke about motives there. Matthew 6 verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness, you know, doing good things, good deeds, religious acts. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's a motive. Otherwise, you get no points with God. I paraphrase it, but that's what it says. Definitely, those involved in ministry, leadership in the church, serving the Lord, we must stay alert to this tendency in our hearts toward selfishness. All of us should. Proverbs 4, verse 23, certainly is written to all God's people. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. You are who you are because of who you are in the deepest part of your heart, including your motives. We should constantly evaluate why we're saying what we say, why we do what we do. Just one more thing about motives while we're on that topic. I put this in my stream of consciousness as well this week. We're not to judge other people's motives. We're to evaluate our own hearts, search our own hearts before the Lord, but we're not called upon to judge the motives of others. That's sinful judging in Scripture. It is God's job to discern motives. Listen to Paul's inspired words in that regard. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. What kind of judgment? This kind. We can judge someone's behavior. If it's immoral, we can say the Word of God calls it immoral. I can make a judgment of that. If somebody's words are sinful, we can say that's sinful speech. That's a judgment we can make based upon Scripture. But we can't do this. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. 
Paul understood the fact that ultimately only God completely and perfectly knows the motives of the heart. Paul knew that about his own motives, even though he put forth effort to keep his own heart, his own conscience as clean as possible. He even commented on that in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. In holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly confidence, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. That's, he says, right before that, he says, this is the testimony of our conscience, as far as we can know. But he knew God knows everything about our hearts. He knows our motives. So what godly motive did Paul keep going back to, to seek to live by and minister by? We saw it last week in verse 4. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, pleasing God, in other words, who examines our hearts. Now that verse is in the midst of our study, obviously, that we're doing here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, a study involving the first eight verses for a few Sundays. In these eight verses of chapter 2, we find the Apostle Paul making comments about the subject of spiritual leadership. And the reason he included these comments about leadership in his letter to the Thessalonians was because false teachers in Thessalonica were spreading lies about Paul and his colleagues, Timothy and Silas, the three missionaries, spreading lies about them, attacking their character, attacking their motives, attacking their teaching, and they were doing that all in an effort to dissuade the people from Thessalonica from listening to those missionaries and believing the gospel. I noted something else with you last time. In addition to those false teachers opposing Paul, the world of his day was full of these traveling religious speakers, religious charlatans, really, who traveled around and ministered from city to city merely to gain wealth, power, and personal prestige. So those apostles, those enemies of Paul, they sought to lump him and Paul and Timothy and Silas in with those hucksters, those cult leaders. Again, to try to convince the people of Thessalonica that Paul and his companions were the same kind of self-seeking frauds as those traveling charlatans. So, though he hated to do it, it was necessary for Paul to defend himself and the other missionaries for the sake of the mission, the gospel mission. Now, as I pointed out last time, we find this look at their ministry in Thessalonica in the form of some contrast. And these contrasts follow this particular pattern. He says, this is what our ministry was not, and here's what it is. And the not this side, each time in verses 1 through 8, begins with a conjunction for, F-O-R, and the but this side, each time begins with a conjunction but. So let's return to our look at what kind of ministers these men were, and by doing so, be reminded again of what we should still desire in church leaders today, what should still describe ministry leadership today. Now, in particular we're finding three ways to recognize genuine gospel 
ministers. Three ways. We looked at two last time. They're known, first of all, for having, number one, the right courage. That was verses one and two. The right courage. Confident Confident boldness in proclaiming the truth of the gospel, regardless of the opposition and regardless of the circumstances. The second way, number two, verses three and four, the right goal. They have the right goal. We learned, Paul says, they weren't preaching out of error, they weren't preaching out of deceit, deceiving people, they weren't preaching out of lives that were impure, immoral. They preached, as we read a moment ago, verse 4, for this goal in, with this goal in mind, to please God. So the right courage, the right goal. Now we get to the third one, and Paul once again turns to the negative side first. He signals it with that conjunction 4 in verse 5. This signals the not this side. It also signals the third way to recognize genuine gospel ministries. Number three, they take the right approach the right approach. Now, the negative side found here is in the form of three denials. As he says, this is what we are not. We were not this in Thessalonica. And what he lists here are some sins, three sins from which the ministry of Thessalonica had been free, and each of these sins are actually related to motives. They're signs that the motives are sinful. So here's the first one he says they were not guilty of. Number one, manipulating people. Now we're looking at the approach to ministry that they had in Thessalonica. And it was not this. It was not characterized by this sin, manipulating people. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech as you know. That term flattery refers to exactly what we are familiar with when we hear that word. It refers to a compliment or the use of compliments, but not not a genuine compliment. I mean, it may be what someone is saying is true to another person, but they're saying it with the purpose in their hearts of winning favor with that person or to gain influence or control over that person. That's flattery. Flattery has the motive of using a person for one's one's own end. In short, it is manipulation of other people for selfish reasons. So Paul seeks their confirmation. He says, as you know, he seeks their confirmation that he and his colleagues never stooped to the sin of flattery and trying to manipulate people. No doubt he was very conscious of what the Old Testament taught about flattery. Here's a couple of verses on that. Psalm 12, verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Proverbs 28, verse 23. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Paul was familiar with the Old Testament. He knew verses like that which is why he wrote what he says here and what he wrote what he says in Romans 16, verse 18, which is this. Talking about some sinful people, he says in Romans 16, 18, such men are slaves, not of Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You see, Paul knew the danger of this very sinful heart motivation which goes along with trying not to offend people, 
It's manipulating people trying to win influence over them or to use them so you avoid offending people in any way. But he knew it's not possible to minister as a gospel minister, to preach the gospel faithfully without ever giving offense to some listeners. I mean, even Jesus offended the the Pharisees of his day. He showed them their sin. He condemned their self-righteous works. So to preach the gospel faithfully requires the minister to be truthful about the topic of sin and people's sin. So that's sure different than softening the message in order to win friends. Definitely different than throwing in compliments in order to, well, the word I grew up with was schmooze people. I was thinking about this week. I was wondering, is that a real word? Because I'm from Texas and we make up words when we need them. Schmooze, it's a real word, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E, schmooze. Throwing in compliments, avoiding offending people, trying to manipulate people. We must not as leaders succumb to manipulating people with flattery just so we get selfishly what we want from them. Here's something else they were not guilty of. Number two, indulging self. Indulging self, verse 5 goes on, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, that word pretext is the word that means cloak, a covering. It's the word for mask. So, in using this term, Paul is saying we didn't come to Thessalonica wearing a mask in order to hide our real greedy motives. What does greed mean? Well, it certainly includes the idea of This inordinate ruling desire for money, but it includes more than money. There is a Greek word he would have used if it was just talking about money. This is a word that means more than that. It means money, but it refers to self-seeking of all types, this pursuit or quest for anything that brings self-satisfaction and feeds self. It's the attitude of eager seeking to have more. So really at the heart of it is self-indulgence, self-indulgence. This is obviously connected to a complete disinterest in the needs of others and the rights of others. So again, Paul emphatically denies that he and the other missionaries were ever motivated this way in Thessalonica. You wouldn't find this characterizing their ministry that they were just there to indulge self. And notice this time he calls on God to witness. This is such a deep, deep heart motivation. It is something only God would know. And therefore, God was the one to whom Paul knew he was ultimately accountable about this. So the point is that the missionaries were very unlike then, those religious charlatans. Very unlike the false teachers. Very unlike those hucksters who sought to gain power and influence, not only through their flattering speech, but all the time their underlying motivation was greed. They came masking their real desires, which was money for sure, but more than that, sexual favors from people. So they used flattery to win over their audience, and then they exploited them in this ruling self-indulgence for all sorts of personal satisfaction and gain. And sadly, sadly, it's common today. We've heard of televangelists and various pastors who 
have been exposed using the ministry to get rich or to be famous. It's not that genuine ministers care nothing about money at all. Obviously, all ministers, including genuine ministers, need money personally to take care of their own financial responsibilities. That's why the New Testament teaches that those involved in full-time ministry ought to be paid fairly for what they do. Ideally, in such a way that would allow them to focus on, on spiritual burdens rather than worldly burdens. And this church is so gracious to us, and we're so grateful for that. But here's some verses in that regard. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. The Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Luke 10, verse 7, sort of a far-reaching proverb here. The laborer is worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, Paul quotes the Old Testament there, the law of Moses. He says, it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. We understand that imagery. I hope we do. The ox would pull this heavy stone around to mash out the kernels of the grain and so forth, and or an ox might be used to pull something through the field, and so they'd be tempted to put a muzzle on the ox so he couldn't eat what he was producing, you know, the grain. It was written in the law of Moses, don't do that. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. I say that to people sometimes, and depending on their age, they look at me like, I have no idea what you were talking about. You know, don't muzzle the ox. What? So it's right to generously pay Christian workers so that they're not preoccupied with money, so they can focus on their spiritual calling. But that is something far different than greed. This self-indulging quest for more and more and more, or certainly different than using the ministry to get rich and famous. On this topic, by the way, ministers must maintain a reputation for handling money with integrity. They need a reputation for handling all opportunities, everything that comes their way, with integrity. They should be known for the very opposite of this self-indulgence and greed. Ministers of all people should be known for being generous in their giving to ministry and giving to others. I think that's one way a minister's attitude toward money is tested, by his giving and his generosity. Back to Paul. In his case... He was an apostle. There were rights that came with being an apostle. He had the right as an apostle to expect financial support from the congregations he served. But he also knew something else, and this is what he was thinking. He founded several of those churches. So he thought it wise to refrain from that privilege and that right to avoid the charge of greed so he did not take pay. On the practical side, he was able to do that because of his state of singleness. He had no direct family of his own to support. Plus, Paul worked from time to time as a tent maker, as we know, to provide for himself. He might have been a greeter at Walmart at times, things like that, just to make extra money. I don't know. But we do know this. From 2 Corinthians 11, we find that the Thessalonians, once Paul left Thessalonica, went to Corinth. The Thessalonians provided financial support to Paul once Paul was in Corinth. Nevertheless, the apostle made every effort to avoid, avoid this charge, greed, self-indulgence. 
which means what he wrote to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 33, was true about Paul. Here's what he said, Acts 20, verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver, no one's gold, no one's clothes, possessions, etc. And ministers today should be known for the same attitude. They should conduct themselves with a concern for the well-being of their people and not the acquisition of things and money and fame. The point is, there's a contrast being presented here. The false teachers, the religious charlatans, they had a reputation for greed, self-indulgence. Paul and his colleagues were known for the opposite. So they weren't guilty of manipulating people. They weren't guilty of indulging self. There's a third sin here that exposes a sinful motive. Number three, craving attention. Craving attention. Verse 6. This can be such an ugly one. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. The term glory is doxa, D-O-X-A. It's used to talk about the glory of God in Scripture, but it has this sort of classical meaning of honor. That's what it means here, honor, or a good opinion. So to seek glory means to seek honor, to seek praise, to seek attention. Again, this world of Paul's day was filled with all these wandering philosophers and teachers and prophets of false religions and magicians and sorcerers. Others seeking from city to city, seeking not only financial gain, but prestige, fame. Paul disavows the desire for praise like that from anybody. Notice something what he does not say here. He doesn't say he he never received honor. In attention. He doesn't say that he had no right to it as an apostle. In reality, he had a right to all the praise and the attention. In reality, he did receive praise from people. Think about it. Even today in 2023, how long now, hundreds of millions of Christians throughout history have been praising Paul, giving attention to him. It's ironic. Because one of the reasons we do is his character. It's this purity of motive that makes him worthy of all the respect that we give him. But his point here again, he was never looking for it. He didn't crave it. He didn't require it from anybody. He didn't require it from his converts. And that participle seek is in the present tense. It means that this was their habitual approach to ministry. They never did it seeking accolades or attention, or applause, or sympathy, or awards, recognition, none of it. Paul was constantly living and ministering with the awareness that the Lord is the one that that saved him. The Lord is the one that gifted him to do what he was doing. The Lord is the one that prepared him for that ministry. The Lord is the one who gave him the opportunity and placed this ministry upon him And because of that, he knew that the only opinion that mattered was God's opinion. And what he wrote elsewhere certainly fits that thinking. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of because I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. God gave me this responsibility to carry out. 
And then he broadens the whole idea to all believers in that famous statement in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or pray or give or serve or set up chairs or whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That consumed Paul. Not getting attention for himself. And that was everywhere, he says. They cared about divine approval, not public esteem. Now, interesting, verse 6 goes on to say he knew that people might actually expect him to throw his weight around as an apostle. Verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they could have legitimately made claims associated with their, their ministry, their, their calling. Just so you'll know, that word apostle means a messenger, a sent one. We think of it in terms of how it's used often in the New Testament, the Gospels, of the, that original 12 that Jesus called to himself and commissioned the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Mark 3, verse 14, Christ appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach, the 12. Later, Judas defected. We know that Matthias, in Acts chapter 1, Matthias was chosen as his replacement, so we're back to 12. But even later, the risen Christ called Paul to be an apostle. Here's how he introduces himself to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. The essential task of the apostle was to preach the gospel, especially calling attention to the resurrection of Christ. That's how they chose Matthias. It says in Acts 1 verse 22 that whoever we choose had to be a witness of the resurrection. Paul met that quality later because the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So they preached the gospel, giving attention especially to the resurrection. There was other things they did. They founded churches. They organized them. They provided ministry for churches. They exercise oversight, but regardless of their activity, from the beginning, apostleship was not so much the conferring of an honor on some outstanding servant of God as it was laying a tremendous obligation and responsibility on that man. So when Paul recalls that the preachers were apostles, he's not thinking privilege, honor, look at us. He's thinking about responsibility, obligation. But just so you'll know, that Greek term apostoloi can be used in a non-technical sense. Sometimes it's referring to others outside the 12. In a less specific sense, anyone who's been selected by the churches and sent out for whatever, you find references like that. Romans 16, verse 7, it says, greet Andronicus and Junius who are outstanding among the apostles. Wait a minute, I don't remember them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Andronicus, Junius. I don't remember them in that list. They weren't. But they're called apostles in the less specific sense there. Philippians 2.25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as an apostle. Calls him a messenger, same word. It doesn't matter. Whether official or unofficial apostles, Paul says in our verse, they were messengers of Christ. And since they represented Christ, they had a responsibility, and with that, they had some delegated authority. So he says here in our verse, 
As apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. You might have expected to do that. I should point out that some translations don't use the word authority there. They translate it burden. The Greek term does refer to the dignity of the office. And so I think authority is the better translation. But it's easy to see how the idea of burden how you would get to that. In other words, the apostles, if they threw their weight around and started making demands based upon their authoritative position, demanding rights for financial support, certainly could end up being a burden on people. But either way you translate it, the principal idea is that the important position of Paul and his colleagues was this. They had been set about part by God to preach the gospel that gave them some honor, gave them authority, yet they did not stand on that right They were far more conscious of their responsibilities than they were of their privileges. And ministers today need this example. We too need to be careful never to abuse our office, our calling, our privileges, our authority. The awareness of our calling from the Lord must be balanced with humility and with a sense of accountability to the Lord. Because the Lord knows every thought and intention, motive of our hearts. That's the negative side of their approach. We're going to look at the positive side of the approach, the but side, but this, next week. Because as I was studying, I noticed that those two verses would be perfect for Mother's Day. So let me summarize what we've said today. Take this home, if nothing else. Genuine gospel leadership. You know, next week I'm going to say this again. I'm going to broaden it some. I'm going to talk about leadership in general because the principles apply. Ministry leadership, any kind of leadership, is not just doing. It's not just activity. From God's perspective, it must be combined with character. The kind of character that guards the heart against ill motives. We should never settle for any kind of leadership, whether it's church or business or government, where a person's only characterized by doing and activity but missing character. God cares about both. But I don't want us to leave here today without recognizing that God's aware of heart motives of not just the leaders. He's aware of the heart motives of every one of us here. It's true for all of us that God knows the why we say what we say to people. Whether it's in marriage, family, parenting, work. He knows the why of the words coming out your mouth. He knows the why of the doing what we do. And we can give an outward appearance that we're We're obeying God or that we're serving others or just trusting the Lord and serving the church. And all the time, our heart motives can be sinful and wrong. We really need to be honest with ourselves about that, about motives, so that we're not deceiving ourselves and we're not deceiving, attempting to deceive others. And with that in mind, the Lord allowed me to find some specific questions that I want to give to you this morning that will help us evaluate our own motives. There's eight of them, and this is one of those rare, rare Lord's days where I have a PowerPoint presentation. Mark this down on your calendar. 
2023. There's eight of them. And just so you'll know, at the very end of this, all eight will be on a final slide together. So don't get your phone out and take a picture of every one of these slides. Take a picture of the last one. But write these down as you go. Question number one of examining our motives. If no one ever knows what I'm doing, you know, like giving our money, serving, sacrificing, could be in the family, no one ever knows. Your wife doesn't know about this sacrifice. Would I still do it? Number two, if there was no visible payoff, visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? These are all related, just saying different ways. Number three, would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? Now, the key word there is joyfully because if you just major on the last part, well, if God asked me to, I mean, what choice do I have? No, it's the joyful part. Number four, am I doing this just for the praise of others? Or how it makes me feel? People do things in order to have a feeling. Makes them feel better. People do good things to to pay penance, and they don't even realize they're paying penance. Penance is not biblical. Penance is the idea of trying to do some things to offset for the other things I know about my life that are wrong. That's Roman Catholic, but it's not Christian. So am I doing it just to get attention, praise from others, or am I doing it just because it makes me feel good? I'm not denying that there isn't joy in pleasing the Lord. There is joy, but what's driving it? Number five. If I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? That question may mean more to us in the days and years ahead in this world. Number six, if others misunderstand or criticize my actions, will I stop? Will I stop doing what's right, the right thing, because now, yeah, it's not turning out the way I wanted (laughs) Number seven, if those whom I am serving never show gratitude or repay me in any way, will I still do it? Kind of saying it again in a different way. Finally, number eight, do I judge my success or failure based upon my faithfulness to what God has called me to do? Or is it something else like how I compare with others? It's called the fear of man, you know caring too much about other people. This final slide has all eight of them on there, and we're going to leave that up even after the service just so you can ponder it. Good questions for all of us. All of us need to keep our motives pure. So it takes praying like this, Psalm 139. Lord, search me, know me, see if there be any wicked way in me because I can't even know my motives. People have asked me that before. How do you, you know? How do you know if your motives are pure? And I, I, I can't completely know. I mean, even on a good day, I suspect there's something ill in there. But I pray, Lord, search me. Your Spirit and Your Word to be like a searchlight that would bring to light ill motives. 
We pray like that and we pray, Lord, daily surrendering ourselves like Romans 12. I give myself to you today, Lord, to be a living sacrifice. We pray saying, Lord, strengthen me to walk by the Spirit today with a goal of pleasing you, not self. Lord, I'm weak in this. Strengthen me for this because I find it easy to want to flatter and manipulate people for my own good. It comes natural to me to indulge self. It's very natural to my flesh to crave attention and praise and sympathy. All of that is so self-focused. Father, thank you for just a moment where we could be reminded that you see the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that it's more to please you is more than just doing. Leading is more than just activity and doing, accomplishing, tasks. Leadership includes character, humility, being, someone that pleases you. So, Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves in this regard, and Lord, even prepare our hearts for the positive side of all this, of what should drive us, what is the right approach. Lord, even today, may we be sensitive to this issue. I do pray for anyone here who cannot say that Christ is my Lord, my Savior, I'm following Him. I pray you would open their hearts, give them faith. We know faith is a gift. Give them faith to believe and trust in Christ alone and to serve Him with all their heart. In our Savior's name, amen.